0: I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 5. please. Mark chapter 5. The Bible is God's mouth, and it's my prayer tonight that God would speak to you personally through His word. And before I even read Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20, I want to ask God's Spirit to do just that, to speak to you through his perfect word. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it even in its reading. Help those who are far off from you to be overcome by the power of your word. Father, convict of sin, show lostness, expose hypocrisy, and be seen tonight through your word as high, exalted, powerful, and able to rescue and change. And reassign. Father, use your word in these students' lives. I beg of you. Thank you that you are by nature a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 5, you can follow along starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Garrisones. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart And broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied. For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid those who had seen it told the people who had happened to the de- what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy. On you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the very word of the living God. Power. Is a funny thing usually when people are met with power they respond to it this week some of us who dwell in California witness the power of weather for the first time in a long time in California we don't have weather just the movement of the ground either in earthquakes or mudslides. Dangerous, but hardly weather. And when we saw those bolts of lightning across the sky here in this beautiful mountain scene, we were aware of the power of that vivid and frightening electricity. Whenever people are confronted with power, They usually respond in some way. Those of you who have the freedom of wheels, in other words, you have your driver's license. You are the object of covetousness, the the 10th commandment of all the other students in the room. And when you're driving down the road and you hear a siren behind you, you have a response to it, don't you? You think, the popo they're after me again. <laughs> because you know they have the power to revoke that one thing that you've worked so hard to have, your driver's license. When people experience power, they usually respond to it. Sometimes people respond to power in a cynical way. They don't trust power, they... Mistrust authority. And so whether it's political power or even power in a classroom, they despise someone being in charge. People usually respond in some way to power. It's fascinating to me that when you read through the testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they continually focus on the power of Jesus. And the story we're looking at tonight, it's a story that's all about power. And the reason I want to explain it to you this evening and show you what it means is that if we are talking about at this camp, to live is Christ, then I want you to know who you are dealing with. Because some of you have a conception of Jesus that is less than powerful. And I would love if some of you encountered his power tonight for the first time. And I would love it if God would be so kind as to bring some of you to a fresh awareness of the power of Jesus tonight, through an encounter that Jesus had with a man who was tortured and shattered and in great distress. Here's the plan. I want to take a few minutes and explain this story to you because it's kind of weird. There's some kind of zombie-like guy. He would be a perfect fit in a horror movie. And he lives among the tombs. There's a massive herd of 2,000 pigs. Some of you think pigs are cute. Some of you are on a team associated with pigs, I think. Is there a pig team? National Swine Awareness? I I think we canceled that one. Never mind. And there's just a lot of parts of this story that are so unusual to us. So I want you to first of all understand it. And that's what I want to spend just a few minutes Explaining the story. And then I'd like to tell you three ways that I think you must respond to this story. I think there's three obvious ways you must respond. And then finally, I would like to show you how this story connects to a greater story. How this story connects to a greater story. So, the plan. It's always good to have a plan. I want to explain it. I want to give you three ways to respond to it And then I want to connect it to a greater story. Cool? Cool. If the oxygen masks go down during this flight, take care of the children next to you. Okay, let's do this. Look with me at verse 1. Notice there's a giant 5 next to it in your Bible. That wasn't always there. That was added later. But as you learned your sophomore year of high school, 5 follows 4. What happened in chapter 4? Well, Mark is telling a really fast-paced story. He was a follower of the followers of Jesus, and he's telling a a story that's quick and rapid and succinct. And so he likes to use a word immediately, 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 and, and moving through the life and ministry of Jesus... Making a a beeline to the cross. And he's quickly moved through several stories that other gospel writers take a long time to tell. He's told about uh, Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath, something very important to the Jews of his day. He's already appointed the 12 apostles. The crowds are massive and they're following Jesus everywhere. Jesus has already restored the ability of a paralyzed man to walk. Jesus has had an encounter with the satanic already at this point. He's already told some of his most famous sayings and parables. Multitudes of people have been healed. Jesus has modeled his prayer life. Leprosy, a disease that everyone was afraid of, has been defeated by the power of Jesus. And now they had just seen, the disciples had just seen this massive and seemingly demonic storm try to flip their boat over, and they were far more afraid of the power of Jesus when he told the storm to be quiet. That's what happened in chapter 4. The disciples have been through a lot following after this rabbi Jesus, and now they went across the lake. It's the morning of the next day after the massive storm that they talked about at the end of chapter 4. And it says they're going to a region called the Gerasenes. I don't want to read you from a a Bible encyclopedia here, but it's enough to know that this is an area that was not very Jewish. There was probably some Jewish people there, but if they were there, they would have been very uncomfortable. This was a place that Roman occupation had dominated. And so it had become a place that was dominated by Gentiles and dominated by commerce. Jews wouldn't like to live in a place where there was a herd of 2,000 swine because of a little something called Leviticus, which we'll do tomorrow morning. Probably not. And so, this was an area that was Gentile, non-Jewish. There was people from all over the world in this area. But it was an area that was right next to Israel because Israel was occupied by these Roman soldiers and the power of the Roman Empire. And so the disciples are going to a place that would have made them quite uncomfortable. As fastidious and law-keeping Jews, to go to a place where they would touch down on the shore uh, among Gentile people would have made them somewhat hesitant and nervous. But here they are at the Gerasenes. Verse 2 says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Okay, things have gotten even more intense, and we're only in verse 2 two. Someone was living among the tombs. And I think that we are so desensitized to this kind of stuff because of entertainment that we see on TV or, or video games that have zombies in them. And so maybe it's not that unusual to you to imagine something like this, but let me just give you a one important distinction between what you've seen on TV or what you stream on Netflix or the video games where you you get rid of zombies or or whatever you have on your phone. Let me give you one distinction between that and this. That is entirely fictional. This is real. This is an actual demon-possessed person, a person who is a real person with actual parents. He likely had siblings. He was from one of these... Ten cities that are mentioned in the final part of this chapter. He grew up there, and something drastic happened in his life where he was overtaken by the power of the devil. Now, we all know that there are Christians who are kind of obsessed with the devil and demonic. One of my first real jobs as a grown-up 18-year-old was working as a salesman, and one of the guys I worked with went on a hunting trip for demons. Cuckoo. I would say that he had an unhealthy preoccupation with the supernatural, to say the least. Other Christians maybe don't mind those matters enough. Suffice it to say that this was a real encounter with a fallen angel, with an evil spirit, with one of Satan's followers, minions, and this was a real person who lived among the tombs. And Mark, who's so fond of going fast in his stories, slows down to give us so much color about this guy. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. There's three negative words in Greek. It's not anymore, no one could, not even with a chain. It's a triple negative to describe how much frustration he had caused the people that lived in this region because he was a monster. He was a man, but he had become a monster to these people. Some kind of frightening sociopath, so demon-possessed that he lived among graves. For the Jews, it would have been unthinkable to even touch those tombs. For the Gentiles, it was downright spooky. And so this guy lived among the graves, and he had caused the townspeople so many problems that they tried to tie him up. And it wasn't just a chain, it was three different words they used after three negative words about not even anyone and not even with a chain and no one so far. Then it says that it was a chain and a chained hand and foot and tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. So they had tried chains, and then when chains, didn't work they tried bigger chains and when they tried bigger chains those didn't work they tried irons this man was such a problem he was so frightening that they had tried everything they could undoubtedly multiple groups of men from the surrounding towns and villages had gone to deal with this guy and they were unable to and so they stayed away from him and he stayed away from them He had probably become the object of the people in the area's scorn, and I'm sure there was a few broken-hearted relatives that remembered when he was a child, a child who would play with the other kids, a kid who ran around the streets in the village, and those who were more sensitive would have remembered the tragedy that this man's life was. But others made a joke of him, I'm sure. Afraid of him and him exiled from them, they were happy to leave him alone and hope that he would leave them alone. And now he found himself tormented by demons and living among the tombs. Verse 5 says, uh, after reminding us that no one was strong enough to stop him, no one was powerful enough to stop him, night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. But then one day, everything would change. A man who had a justifiably terrible reputation. A monster who lived among his kinsmen. A person who had a real story and a real family and who was part of, of this community no more. who is now ostracized and lived by himself and was partly subdued with chains, but not fully able to be controlled, who would cause the people in the region great problems, would have an encounter that day. Days before that were marked by self-punishment. He would somehow try to carve these demons out of himself with sharp stones. His flesh would have been slashed and bleeding. This man was a monstrous mess, a person, a real person made in the image and likeness of God, a person with a mom and a dad, a person who was part of a family, they were still alive, we hear about them at the very last part of this verse, a person who had been transformed into something less than a person. The word that the Bible uses here for subdue him is the same word in the book of James that talks about taming a wild beast. So this beast-like monstrosity of a person was so harassed and possessed by demonic forces that he would try to cut them out of him and his wails and cries and moans would have been heard among the tombs of this region. That was before this morning. This morning, he saw someone coming. And it wasn't a group of men with bigger chains and weapons to try to stop this guy. It wasn't going to be another fight this time. It was something far more powerful. The demon-possessed man would encounter the deity. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. That's a phrase that's used, we heard it the other night, with the rich young ruler. We hear it with the prodigal son. It's used all over the Bible as someone who is is worshiping. And we don't know if this demon-possessed man was trying to attack Jesus, like the storm had tried to attack Jesus, but he falls short of Jesus and and seemingly some sort of prostrate way showing that he is inferior and showing that Jesus is is worthy of him being face flat down in the ground. And this demon-possessed man shouts at the top of his lungs a strange question. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? The Most High God's an expression that Gentiles use to talk about the God of Israel. When they revered and respected him, they would speak of him as one who was higher than all other gods. And so this person, likely a Gentile, was acknowledging that Jesus himself was the son of the God of gods, the God of Israel. He also announced his immediate subservience, what chains and swords and weapons and thugs and clubs couldn't contain, suddenly this man was on his face before the Son of God announcing his submission to Jesus only at the sight of him. The other gospel writers tell us there was two demon-possessed men. Mark highlights the one who is the most prominent in the way he tells this story. But this was not a place that got many visitors. But when Jesus came, something started to change. And Jesus' presence subdued this monster. Jesus' presence quieted these demons for a moment, but it would be Jesus' words of power in verse eight when he says, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then probably more for our sake and the disciples' sake than for any other reason, Jesus asks a follow-up question. What is your name? The demons speaking through this man say, My name is Legion, a word that to the ears of anyone in Palestine in those days would have made them think of the Roman soldiers. 5,600 soldiers made up a legion. I don't think the demons are being mathematically accurate here. They're not saying there are 5,600 demons inside of this guy just in case you're doing a census here, Jesus. Instead, they're saying they have so divided this man and they are so in control of this man and they are so prolific over this man that they are like a legion. The way that the Roman Empire had its thumb on Israel and on the surrounding world, the superpower of ancient Rome, all its soldiers, all its power, all its authority, they were like that. It's why they called themselves legions for we are many. And this man begs Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. The demons speaking through this man, recognizing the matchless power of Jesus, ask for some sort of commute of their sentence. You see, these demons have some theological understanding of what the future holds. They understand something that there are people in this room who've been to church their whole lives do not understand. The demons understand this basic and fundamental truth that in the end the God who made this world, who spoke it into existence, who created you and me and who sent his son to die for our sins will eventually rule and reign completely over everything and every evil act and every evil thing, every person, every demon will be judged and punished. And so the demons are trying to negotiate for more time because they know their judgment is inevitable. And they say, don't send us out of this area to wander, but send us to those pigs there. Verse 12, the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. The pigs commit suicide. The demons are vanquished. The people who were the pig herders in verse 14, the tenders of the pig. You've heard of chicken tenders. These are pig tenders. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. I mean, this was a crazy scene. Pigs aren't normally known for their ability to run. Not leopards, cheetahs, gazelles, pigs. These pigs... Booked it. The devils go into the pigs, and the pigs run, and the pigs jump off the cliff and die. Crashing to their death, two thousand pigs. I mean, imagine the disgusting scene. That is a lot of snouts. That is a vast quantity of bacon. And here are all these corpses of pigs. A completely defiling scene, a Gentile area, tombs, a demon-possessed man, and lots of pigs. There's nothing Jewish about this story. But I want you to look a little closer at how the people respond, verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You see, the people who saw this miracle, this deliverance, this exorcism, responded the same way the disciples responded when Jesus told the storm to be quiet. A dangerous and potentially demonic kind of storm attacking Jesus' boat. Jesus speaks a word and the storm is over. This dangerous and demonic monstrosity of a man, shattered, though made in the image and likeness of God, once part of a family, but now destroyed by self-inflicted violence and by being a danger to his community and living among the graves, now is completely changed in a moment by a word from Jesus. And the people respond with fear. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They responded to this scene by asking Jesus to go away. That's a bold move, I think. If the guy who tortured your town and caused you so many problems who you couldn't control and you couldn't chain up was unable to be stopped by you, then how dare you be confronted with the one more powerful than that man, more dangerous than the demonic one, and ask him, probably politely, will you please leave? They knew chains wouldn't get rid of Jesus. And so they begged Him, like the demons begged Jesus to send them into the swine, to go away. Go away, Jesus. You're too dangerous to be here. What was their motivation? Could have been financial. 2,000 pigs would cost a lot of money. And now they are smushed. You can't really make pig jelly. And so their profits are gone. This town would have been economically devastated by this miracle. But they were also delivered from this demon-possessed man. Because he's different. And then Jesus turns around, gets into the boat, and starts to leave. And now, after being begged and pleaded with by the demons, and then begged and pleaded with by the inhabitants of the Decapolis to go away, this man, who is now wearing clothes, because he was completely naked before, this man who is now no longer howling in the night, but clear and in his right mind, is requesting of Jesus something very reasonable. This man who was hurting himself and hurting others is now no longer wandering among the tombs like a monster or like a zombie. Instead, he's seated. A position of calmness, of learning, of submission. And he makes a simple request of Jesus He begs him, let me go with you, let me go with you. That's the same language Jesus used when he asked disciples to join him. He would say to Peter and Andrew, come with me. Others would approach Jesus who would become his disciples and ask, may we go with you. The same phrase is used now by this formerly demon-possessed man who had been radically changed by Jesus, and he asks Jesus, may I go with you? And I think you would have asked the same thing if Jesus would have rescued you from a situation like that. If your life was shattered and destroyed and demonic, and if your existence was this low and awful, and if you had been turned from a monster back into a man, and if the one who did that did it with just a simple sentence, I think you too would say, Jesus, take me with you. Don't leave me. But Jesus tells him no. And reminds us of the humanity of this man by saying go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. That's the ten cities that surround this area and all the people now respond with amazement. What a story. A demon-possessed man healed, delivered, and transformed. How should we respond to the power of Jesus? If to live as Christ is written all over your booklet, If that's the theme of what we're thinking about this week, how should we respond to the power of Jesus? Three ways. We explain the story, and now I have three responses for you. First, we must acknowledge His authority. Acknowledge His authority. Jesus is still all-powerful. Jesus is still able to deliver and transform. In the ancient world, there was plenty of sorcerers and witches and those who had spell books. You see them in the book of Acts. And they had various and Scholars have found ancient inscriptions and writings of various kind of magical formulas to try to rid someone of evil spirits. And they go on for pages and pages, and they involve lots of rituals and lots of formulas and lots of ingredients and you gotta stand a certain way and say a certain thing and the incantation is this and this and this and those things were absolutely powerless. It was the demonic versus the demonic. Jesus with a simple sentence Come out of this man, you evil spirit, gets rid of whatever hundreds of demons possessed this man and harassed this man and tried to ruin this man with simply his words because Jesus has all authority. The Bible is the mouth of God, and when Jesus speaks, he speaks through the scriptures. And Jesus is speaking still. He has spoken to you repeatedly. Every time you've sat in church and heard your pastor open the Bible, you have heard the incarnate son of God speak in scripture. And his words still have All authority. He has absolute right over every demon, over every demon-possessed creature, over every person, whether you're a teenager with no money in your pockets and no influence and no power, Jesus has authority over you. Or whether you are a big deal in your own eyes, God is bigger still and Jesus is the ultimate authority. When we hear a story like this, we should acknowledge that we are are not powerful. That Jesus is powerful. That we are not the ones who are in charge. We do not have final say. We do not have the ability to change ourselves. Only Jesus can do that, and he can do it with his words. Acknowledge his authority. Second, be awestruck by his power awestruck by his power. It's amazing, isn't it, to think about the transformation of this man. Naked, cutting himself, living in the graves, chasing away the people, fighting off those who tried to enslave him or, or control him. Howling at the moon at night, screaming, screaming, harassed and possessed by demons. And then in that scene, we see how changed he is. Sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. Friend, the guy is sitting down. He has a shirt on, and he's speaking clearly. So what? That is just the outside. That's just the outside. That's just some evidence of what Jesus, the Son of God, has done. Because Jesus is God, because Jesus is all-powerful, Jesus did way more than put a shirt on a naked guy. Jesus did way more than just cause this guy to calm down what happened that displays the awesome power of almighty God in the old testament he's called el shaddai the god who is all powerful over all other gods who is almighty who is majestic and who can do anything is now seen in his son in the person of Jesus the god man and Jesus was able to show that he has supernatural power that isn't just able to change the exterior look of a person, but is able to transform this person from a monster who is possessed by thousands of devils inside into something completely different. That's the power of God. That's the power of Jesus's word. That's what we should be awestruck by. It isn't just that You used to be like this in outward appearance, and now you're looking a lot cleaner over there, demon possessed guy. It's not just that he's not cutting himself anymore, it's not just that he's now no longer howling at the moon and wandering among the tombs, and now he's seated with good posture. That is only the external evidence of what Jesus has done to this man and for this man. Be awestruck that Jesus can change you not just on the outside but first where it matters on the inside. Jesus can transform you within and there is nothing that you can be enslaved to. There is no Drawing power of lust. There is no bedlam within. There is no addiction. There is no attraction. There is no sinful indulgence that Jesus, by his power, cannot overcome with a word. That's the power of Jesus. And it should make us awestruck. Third response. We ought to be, like this man, aware of our debt. Obviously, he wants to go with Jesus, but a Gentile disciple was not part of the plan of God. It would have significantly prohibited Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Let that be enough. But this man knew that he owed Jesus far more than he could ever pay. Like a a blind person we encounter many times in the Scriptures who gets their sight back And now they can see and they can't stop running their mouth about it. Sometimes Jesus had to tell them, don't tell anyone because the messianic expectations of the crowd were so hot, they were trying to push forward Jesus's divinely appointed timeline. And so he had to chill people out sometimes on the worshiping Jesus thing because he had a plan that they didn't all quite understand. In this case, this man is not going to Jerusalem with the disciples. He will not be there when Jesus is betrayed and arrested and crucified. Instead, he will be the guy with scars all over his arms, who is now wearing clothes, who everyone had seen possessed who everyone had talked about as a monster, as a shattered person, a person restored and now looking like a human being. And they will hear him tell his story. And he will tell it in the first city, and he'll tell it in the second city, and the third city, and the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10 cities of the he will go from place to place and he will tell everyone what Jesus has done for him and how Jesus, the Lord, has had mercy on him. When we encounter the power of Jesus, we should acknowledge his authority, be awestruck by his power, and be very aware of the debt. How could you receive anything from kind Saving, delivering Jesus and not be very quick to tell others about it. He changed my life. He can change your life too. I was under the spell of Satan and now I follow Jesus as Lord. Those are the three responses. We have one thing left to do. Let me connect this in just a minute to the greater story. And here it is. Mark doesn't end the story here. The trifecta of stories is Jesus calms the storm, Jesus delivers the demoniac from Gesserine, and Jesus raises a dead girl. That's the story to follow. But there's a larger story there. And it's one that ends the way Mark's Gospel ends. Jesus repeatedly predicted his death and told his disciples it was an absolute necessity. And you know the story, betrayed by one of his followers, delivered over to the Sanhedrin and then to the Romans who would crucify him in a sham trial. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus on the cross. In the previous section, he's already been stripped of all his clothes. And a a whip in the hands of a strong Roman soldier who is part of a whole legion of soldiers, a legion would have whipped the flesh of Jesus, little rocks embedding in his skin and lacerating his back, making it like bloody ribbons. Jesus would have gotten all cut up. And Jesus would have been nailed to that cross and Jesus would have yelled these things out on the cross. And the Jews would have had to stay back because they couldn't touch someone this defiled. And they knew that, This was the ultimate defilement for a Jew to be crucified on a cross by Romans. It was disgusting to them. And they were so fastidious about their laws, they said, Someone quickly get him down before the Sabbath. Put him in a tomb with the dead people where the corpses go. And I know Mark put this all together because his story about that demon-possessed man is part of a greater story about what would happen to Jesus. You see, Jesus would be put outside of the city. Jesus would be ostracized and cut off. Jesus would be all cut up too, bloody and beaten. And Jesus wouldn't be among the tombs. Jesus would be in a tomb. And Jesus would be crying out in the darkness of night, stuff that lots of people said was nonsense. They'd look at him on the cross and say he's demon-possessed. But what was happening in that moment was Jesus was receiving the wrath of God as Jesus had sent An early death and punishment to all those evil spirits that tormented this man. Now God, on that cross, would judge his own son. And he would do it to demonstrate his power over sin. His commitment to justice. He would punish and kill his own son. Because he could not let your sin go unpunished. And so God would pour out his judgment and wrath on his own son. And he did it for your sake. He did it so that you could be delivered, so that you could be transformed so that you could encounter the power of God in the gospel, a message that we have been telling you all week long, a message that your youth pastor has been pleading with you that your believing parents have told you since you were little, Jesus died in your place he took on the judgment of almighty God on that cross, he was buried in the grave, he suffered the wrath of God and experienced the power of hell on himself so that all who would trust in him would not receive the judgment of God. And then three days later, Jesus would be clothed and Jesus would be risen and Jesus would be alive, vindicating every claim he ever made and showing that God had defeated the devil and defeated sin and made a way for you, lost person. As lost as any demon possessed monster, as controlled by sin as that man in Gennesaret, that you could be changed. First and foremost on the inside. And then, aware of your debt, awestruck by Jesus' power and following his authority you would go and you would tell everyone what Jesus in his mercy has done for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son as a perfect sacrifice for sinners to experience your right judgment, to be punished for our sin so that we could live forever. May we have the same boldness that that transformed man had to go back to our families and back to our towns and to tell what Jesus has done for us. God, thank you for your matchless mercy.